It's so good to see new people coming to the church. And so if you're joining us for the first time or maybe you're watching for the first time online, we want to give you a particular welcome and so glad to have you here. Uh, today we're beginning a brand new series called What the World Needs Now. And uh, we really think that this is something that the church really needs to hear about or because we're living in very, very crazy times. So it's a, it's a much needed series in our our hope is that this series will really be life-changing um, for you, for our church, and perhaps even for those all around us. Now, my heart is heavy this morning. Uh, as Pastor uh, Dave mentioned, this message is kind of more PG-13. And so, uh, again, I want to just reiterate what he said. Heads up to, to the parents out there, especially if you have young children, uh, so I'm going to be sharing some things about some of the things that are going on in the world, and it's and it, what's going on in the world is really not suitable for children, and so I'm not doing anything deliberate, and it, and it makes me kind of sad because we we got so many children here today, so we got to get our kids ministry going, and we're working on that. Uh, as soon as we get enough volunteers to help with that, we're going to be be doing that really really soon. So I want to begin our time with a word of prayer. All right, and then we'll open up God's word and uh, see what it has to say about this very, very important topic of what the world needs now. All right, let's pray. Father, uh, thank you so much for gathering us here together today. Uh, whether we're online, whether uh, the folks are outside, under our, our tent, whether they're here this morning uh, in the worship center, God, it's so good to be here together. And um, Father, as I catch my breath, as I ask you, Father, to enter this place and enter our presence, God, will you please speak to us? Will you please give utterance to my lips so that what comes out will be from you and that we'll hear from you? And Father, I know that in a lot of ways some of the things that we hear today are not gonna be easy to hear, but I pray that, that um, in every way, God, it would be um, you that would be hearing from and that we would unpack your word and see what it is that you have to say to us Jesus, about how we are to live our lives. So, God, we commit this time to you. And again, I ask that you would use me, God, to convey your word. So, thank you, Father. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to begin by speaking to you about a matter that has touched me personally, and that's Asian hate, which we have um, heard a lot about recently. Unfortunately, Asian hate is nothing new. It's been around for a long time long time. Asians have been caricatured and they have been stereotyped and discriminated against um, probably since the time they started immigrating to America more than 150 years ago. Um, after they started arriving in larger numbers in our country, Congress passed laws banning the immigration of Japanese and Chinese to our country. They just said, we don't want them here. And then states like California followed suit by banning or prohibiting them from opening or, or owning property, and that included my, my grandparents. And then World War II broke out, and President Franklin Delano Roosevelt signed Executive Order 9066, which led to the incarceration of 120,000 Japanese and Japanese Americans here on the West Coast to internment camps, and that included my own parents. This particular poster, I wanna show you this poster, was hung on telephone poles throughout the South Bay ordering people of Japanese ancestry to report to a church in Long Beach on April 5th, 1942. That would have been 
79 years ago this month, they were ordered to report to a church in Long Beach from where they were taken to evacuation centers where they would remain for the duration of the war. I want to read a portion of this starting at the, at the top, and I think you'll find that this hits very close to home. It says this, quote, instructions to all persons of Japanese ancestry living in the following areas. Beginning at, one, at a point in the Pacific Ocean three miles west of the point in Los Angeles County, California, at which the northerly limits of the city of Redondo Beach meet the Pacific Ocean. Thence commencing in an easterly direction following the boundary limits of the city of Redondo Beach to the intersection thereof with the southerly line of Torrance Boulevard. Thence in an easterly direction along the southerly line of Torrance Boulevard to the point where the same intersects the westerly line of Cabrillo, Cabrillo or Cabrillo in the city of Torrance. Thence in an easterly direction along the southerly line of Carson Street. And so on and so forth. When I read this, I just thought, how chilling, how chilling that the people targeted by this particular order lived right here in Redondo Beach and in Torrance in neighborhoods and streets that we're very familiar with like Torrance Boulevard and Carson Street. And there were similar government decrees for those living in Gardena and Los Angeles and Boyle Heights and San Gabriel Valley and elsewhere. And the orders also specified what you could bring with you, which was limited to what you could carry. You could only bring what you could carry and uh, everything else had to be left behind. And growing up, my parents often spoke about the prejudice that they and my grandparents faced. And I've experienced it myself as recently as a year ago in a parking lot in Target. I was simply standing there when somebody drove by and verbally assaulted me, I'm presuming because of my Asian heritage. The truth is, however, the truth is that last year, every one of us witnessed hate in a way we had never seen it before. All of us experienced it in a way we've never seen it before. We continued to see hate that many people in our, in our country have toward, toward African-Americans. We saw hate toward law enforcement officers ramp way up. This last November, we witnessed, in my opinion, this is my opinion, the most venomous, hate-filled presidential election in our lifetime. We also hate directed at Christ followers when, for example, anarchists in Portland burned a stack of Bibles. Someone who's personally acquainted with hate is actor Chris Pratt, who is one of the stars of the Avengers series. Chris Pratt, I love the guy, he's a Christ follower. And he has been viciously attacked on social media for attending a church that believes that marriage is between a man and a woman. And you don't have to be famous to be hated. If you post a comment online on nearly any topic, you risk being attacked and maligned and even canceled. And if you don't post, you risk being canceled for not posting. If someone discovers something you said or something you did decades ago, even if you're a different person today, you could be canceled for that as well. And the sad part is, even Christians have gotten in the act by saying some very hateful things. Now, I sincerely appreciate those who speak out against hate. We should speak out against hate. And I stand with those who condemn hate. We all should. But here's what you need to know. Canceling someone and making statements about it and protesting against hate is not going to stop the hate. 
it's not. It might focus attention on the problem for a short while, but it's not going to end the hate. Right? The only way you can stop hate if you change a man's heart. That's the only way you can stop hate because hate comes from within us, which points to the fact that hate is a sin problem. And the Bible says that we all sin. Every one of us sins. Can I tell you something else? The prevailing narrative today is that white people are the ones who are doing the hating. That couldn't be further from the truth because everyone hates. Asian hate, Asian people hate just as much as white people. And black people hate just as much as Asian people and white people. And Hispanic people hate just as much as Asian people and white people and black people. Most of the prejudice that I've I've experienced in my own life did not come from white people. It came from non-white people. And then, to illustrate how pervasive and insidious the hate problem is, you can even fight hate among people groups, the various Asian people groups that there are today, between Japanese, between Chinese, between Koreans, between Filipinos, and so on. I have seen that with my own eyes. Hate is everywhere because sin is everywhere. And only when our hearts are transformed by the power of Almighty God can we begin to love and not hate. Now, some people have asked, why don't you do more about hate? What are you going to do more? What are you doing? What are you, why don't you do more to, to fight hate? My answer is, we do. Every day, we do. We fight hate by proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. We fight hate by helping people find and follow Christ. We hate by helping people to grow in their faith and by teaching them the ways of the Lord. We fight hate by teaching them what the Bible has to say about how you can be born again and how you can be a brand new person. And there's even a prayer there about how how you can, you know, you ask God to create a clean heart within you. And We fight hate by serving others, by sharing God's love with others, and by supporting the work of God all throughout the world. And we fight hate every day when we point others to Jesus because he is the only one. He is the only one who can change a a hating heart into a loving one. As I mentioned ago, we're beginning a new series here called What the World Needs Now. And what the world needs now today is love. It needs love. So grab your Bible. Turn to Matthew chapter 24, first book in the New Testament, And and we're going to camp right there, and I want to show you something that Jesus said about about all of this. Now, back at the end of 2019, a group of us from our church went to Israel for the very first time. It was the venture of a lifetime. I'd never been there before. And uh, if you have always wanted to visit the Holy Land, but you've never had the opportunity, I want you to know that we are planning to go back to Israel in the spring of 2022. Right, it'll be right after Easter. I think it's starting the third week in April. We are planning to go back to Israel. And the reason why we push the trip back into 2022 is because we hope that by then, COVID will be non-existent and it'll be safe for all of us to go. And uh, if you are interested in going to Israel with us on the trip of a lifetime, it has changed me so much. We'll be having some information meetings coming up here shortly. We'll let you know about that and we'd love to just have you Learn more about it. Then you can make a decision about whether or not this is something you'd like to do. Now, what's going to make this particular trip truly exciting and exceptional is that we have booked one of Israel's top archaeologists. He's an archaeologist, Eli Shukran, who's with the Israel Antiquities Authority. 
And he's going to be our guide for 10 days while we're there. And he has excavated some of the sites that we're going to be visiting. And he'll be able to tell us firsthand some of the things that he's discovered. And, and Eli Shukran is also a Christ follower. He's a Messianic Jew. And so we're going to hear from the perspective of a Jew, from the perspective of an archaeologist, somebody who's been involved in the digs, and from the perspective of somebody who is a Christ follower. And it is going to be absolutely incredible. So I'm planning to go back. When I heard Eli Shukran was going to be there, oh, he's going to be our guide. I said, yeah, we're going to go. Cheryl wants to go. And if you'd like to go, let us know. And of course, if there's a sudden surge and we don't think it's safe, then we'll cancel the trip. All right? So uh, we'll let you know about that. Uh, come with us if you can. Now, when we were there in, in 2019, we had the opportunity to stand on the Mount of Olives. Mount of Olives, according to the Bible, Zechariah, is where Jesus will plant his feet. When he comes, when he returns at his second coming, he's going to come and he's going to stand on the Mount of Olives and the Mount of Olives is going to split right in two. We had the opportunity when we were there to stand on the Mount of Olives. In fact, this is a group picture. Uh, this is our group that was there. And we are standing right here on the Mount of Olives. Now, what you can't tell is that right below us, it dips into a valley. And that's the Kidron Valley. And then it rises up to Mount Moriah on which the on which Jerusalem, the old Jerusalem can be found, and, and that's the old Temple Mount. And you can see the uh, Islamic shrine that's been, that was uh, constructed there on the Temple Mount. We're going to go to all those places. But, but there we were on, on Mount of Olives. And uh, 2,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago, all this wasn't here. Long before, of course, the old city was there, but, but long before there were paved roads, Jesus made his way up to the Mount of Olives. And it was there that his disciples came to him. And they asked him a question about the last days, about the end times. Here's what Matthew 24, starting verse 3 says. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? They wanted to know what to look for and what the last days would be like. What are the signs of the last days? And in response to those questions, Jesus laid out a bunch of signs, told them about a lot of things that are going to be going on that would transpire during the seven-year period leading up to the second coming. That seven-year period is known as the Great Tribulation period. That's the period when the Antichrist will rule the world. So Jesus has described some signs that would take place during those seven years leading up to his return. And in verse 12 of this passage, he said something about the last days that was absolutely jarring. It was jarring. Take a look at verse 12. And, it said, and Jesus said, and because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. Because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. Jesus said that in the last days leading up to his return, the love of many will grow cold. Here's how New Testament scholar Marvin Vincent paraphrased what Jesus said. He said, in the last days... The love of many will be blighted or chilled by a malign, poisonous wind. The love of many will be blighted or chilled by a malign or poisonous wind. You know, for those of you who joined us today uh, in person, the first thing we did when you walked in was to make sure, we wanted to make sure that your body temperature was in the normal range of about 98.6, right? If the thermometer told us that you were hot, we would have probably sent you home. Because when it comes to body temperature, hot is not good, right? Hot is not good. But when it comes to love, hot is very good. Hot is very good. Cheryl used to say to me all the time, you are hot. She didn't say that to me anymore. 
But she used to say that to me all the time. You see, when it comes to love, hot is very good. And cold is not very good. Cold is not good. Jesus said that in the last days, love would be cold. Love would grow cold because of a poisonous wind called lawlessness. Because lawlessness will be increased. Love of many will grow cold. Lawlessness is another word for sin. It's another word for sin. And thus, Jesus made a correlation, a direct correlation between lawlessness and love. There's a connection between lawlessness and love. And the more lawlessness there is, the less love there will be. That's what he was saying. The more lawlessness there is, the less love there will be. And put another way, the more lawlessness there is, the more hate there will be. The more lawlessness, the more hate. And that's what we're seeing today. Today, lawlessness is skyrocketing in our country, all across our country at an alarming rate, fueled, I believe, in part by cities and states that sanction lawlessness. I don't know if you know this, but last November, just a few months ago, the voters in Oregon voted by a margin of 58 to 42, 58 to 42, to legalize the possession of hard drugs. They voted to legalize. It became law this year in January, I believe. Here's the first sentence from a story that appeared in U.S. News and World Report. It said this, quote, Oregon became the first state in the United States to decriminalize the possession of all drugs on November 3rd, 2020. They legalized all drugs, including among them LSD, Oxycontin, methamphetamine, psychedelic mushrooms, heroin, and cocaine. It's now legal to possess these drugs in Oregon. And when you make drugs like this available, hard drugs available uh, for people to use, what will they do? They'll use them. They'll use them. And thus, the voters of Oregon took a huge step toward sanctioning lawlessness. About four or five years ago, someone stole the catalytic, catalytic converter off my daughter's car in the middle of the night. We actually heard the alarm go off, and we thought it was a cat that jumped on the alarm on the car, and so we didn't do anything about it. The next morning, we found out that her catalytic converter was stolen. When she turned it on, and it roared like a truck. Well, of course, we called the sheriff's department. Deputy showed up, and he said, you know, I'm sorry to tell you this, but there's really nothing we can do about it because, because uh, theft in our state has been decriminalized, which means there's really nothing. They can take your catalytic converter, and we can't do anything about it. Well, I couldn't believe it. This couldn't be right. right? That, can't make, that doesn't make any sense. And so I, I went back and I checked into it. It was a Sunday morning because we were getting ready to come to church. And sure enough, he was right. In 2014, California voters, by a vote of 59 to 41, 59 to 4, landslide vote approved Proposition 47, which among, among other things decriminalized theft, Forgery, check fraud, and drug use. They decriminalize those things, which means today, and I ran this by James Baker, who's a sergeant, who used to be a sergeant with the LAPD. I ran these by him to make sure it was right. But today, you can walk into a store, choose any store you want. You can go to Target or Walmart or Macy's or, or Ralph's. You can walk into a store and steal up to $950 in merchandise, and the police won't even arrest you. They won't even arrest you and the DA won't prosecute you. If you go beyond $950, then you might be in trouble. But as long as it's under $950, you're okay. You can forge checks based on Proposition 14 of this new law. You can forge a check, or you can write a bad check. As long as the amount doesn't exceed $950, authorities won't do anything about it. They can't do anything about it. You can also receive stolen property from someone 
as long as the amount, the value of the stolen property doesn't exceed $950, as long as it doesn't exceed $950, you're fine. You can, you can keep that stuff. And you can write bad checks, same thing, $950, and get away with it. And you know what happens when it becomes legal to steal? And it becomes legal to forge checks and to write bad checks and receive stolen property and do drugs? You know what happens? People steal. People forge checks. People write bad checks. They commit check fraud. They receive stolen goods, and they do drugs. In essence, California voters voted to sanction lawlessness. And since the initiative passed, lawlessness in California has, has skyrocketed, has escalated. And every area, not just in those areas that that were covered by this law. Lawlessness has increased in every category. Last year in Los Angeles, murders were up 30%. Last year in New York City, murders were up 40%. New Orleans, 61%. In St. Louis, 34%. In Dallas, 23%. In Philadelphia, 35%. In Boston, 54%. In Oakland, 37%. In Nashville, in the heart of the Bible Belt, 40%. Minnesota, in the Midwest, 72%. Murders are up 72%. In Chicago, 55%. Milwaukee, up 95% last year. In Atlanta, 58%. In Portland, 51%. Seattle, 74%. This used to be one of the most beautiful cities in the Pacific Northwest, in the country. San Bernardino, right in our own backyard, 48%. San Francisco, 35%. And I just gave you the names of 16 cities. There are up to 60 cities in our country where the murder rate has just shot up just shot up in the last year. And then, of course, you've heard the calls to defund the police. 20 cities have already slashed their police budgets, including the city of Los Angeles. And regardless of what you may think about police budgets and think about the police, um, when you don't enforce the law, it only leads to more lawlessness. That's what happens. And when, it's not, and when lawlessness increases, what happens? Love will grow cold and hate will intensify. And that's why I am not surprised at what we're seeing today. All this, all this hate, it doesn't surprise me. And if you think things are bad now, you just wait. Because with each passing year, things aren't gonna get better, things are only gonna get worse. I believe that what we're witnessing today is a foretaste of things to come. The closer we get, and the closer we get to the great tribulation to those seven years that lead to the second coming of Christ, the closer we get to that seven year tribulation period, the worse it will get. And once we enter into that seven-year tribulation period, forget it. All bets are off. All hell is going to break loose. 2 Thessalonians 2, 7 says, Paul wrote, for the secret power of lawlessness is already at work. It's already at work. Before the great tribulation is even here, it's already at work. But the one who now holds it back will continue to do so until he's taken out of the way. There's somebody who's holding back the lawlessness, restraining the lawlessness. But once that person is taken out, all hell, all hell will break loose. And the one who is holding back or restraining the lawlessness is none other than the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit is taken out, then watch out. You know, if you know your eschatology, all right, if you know your eschatology, you will know that, that, that before the great tribulation begins, Christ is going to descend from heaven and he's going to come, and he's called his church together, and he's going to take us home to be with him, right? That event is known as the rapture. We've talked about that a lot here. And that's when the Holy Spirit will be taken up because the Holy Spirit lives in us. We're going to be taken up, and the Holy Spirit isn't going to be on, on planet Earth, right? And when the restrainer, the Holy Spirit, is taken up, then 
things are going to go really crazy, even worse. Things are going to go from bad to worse. The good news is, if you're a committed Christ follower, you have nothing to worry about. You have nothing to worry about because you won't be around when all those bad things happen. Things are bad enough as it is, right? But during the Great Tribulation, you won't have anything to worry about because Christ will take, will take us home to be with Him. We'll be in heaven. You see, the power of lawlessness is already at work. We see it all around us. That leads me to the question, all right? So that's the introduction for the message. That leads me to this question. What do we do about it? What do we do about it? How do we live in a world that's full of hate? What do we do about all this hate? Should we march on City Hall? Should we, should we show up at, and organize protest rallies? Should you go out and buy a gun and stock up on ammo? On the night before Jesus was crucified, he gathered in the upper room with his disciples. In fact, when we were in, his, in Jerusalem, they took us to a, an upper room. We had to climb some stairs. They said, we think this might have been the upper room where Jesus gathered with his disciples. And our, our guide said, no, I don't think this is the upper room. But this is what people think. So we went there, you know, whether it was or not, it wasn't really that, that important to us. But we went up there. And when he gathered together with his disciples in the upper room on the night before he was crucified, he washed the disciples' feet, all 12 of them. He washed their feet. He broke bread with them. And then he said some very significant things to them. And what he didn't say to them, when I read the passage in John 13, what he didn't say to them was what their lives would be like in the future. He didn't tell them that their lives were about to be turned upside down. He didn't tell them how they were going to die, even though he knew all these things. Now, we can't say with 100% certainty how the 12 disciples died, how they all died, because the Bible really doesn't tell us except for the disciple James, who, according to Acts 12, 2, was killed by the sword. But we have an idea of how the disciples died because tradition has been handed down for centuries telling us how they died. Tradition, for example, tells us that Peter was crucified upside down by Emperor Nero because Peter felt unworthy to be crucified right side up. Thomas was pierced... Uh, was speared to death in Israel. That's what tradition tells us. Tradition also tells us that Philip died a cruel death at the hands of the Roman proconsul. According to tradition, Matthew was stabbed to death in Ethiopia. Bartholomew was flayed by a whip and crucified head down. Tradition tells us that Andrew was beaten and crucified on an X-shaped cross. Tradition tells us Matthias, who replaced Judas Iscariot as one of the disciples, was stoned and then beheaded. According to Jewish historian Josephus, James, son of Alphaeus, another one of the disciples, was stoned and then clubbed to death. And then legend has it that Simon the Zealot was executed in Persia for refusing to offer sacrifice to their sun god. And finally, according to a Latin tradition, the apostle John was boiled in a vat of oil, which he somehow miraculously survived, and then he was banished to the, to the island of Patmos, where he wrote the book of Revelation and then died. Now, if these traditions are anywhere near the truth, they're anywhere near the truth. The disciples didn't live happily ever after. They faced unimaginable adversity, hatred, vilification, and then martyrdom. Knowing what they were going to face, Jesus spelled out for them how he expected them to live in a world after he was gone. Here's what Jesus told them in the upper room on the night before he was crucified, John 13, 34, and 35. He said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Okay, you can stop there. It doesn't get any clearer than this. 
Jesus told them to love one another. They were going to face hate. Jesus said, love one another. This was how he expected his followers to live in a world of unrelenting hate. Love one another. Now, in the first phrase of this verse, Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you. Technically, this wasn't a new commandment because in the Mosaic laws, Leviticus 19, 18, God commanded the Jews to love their neighbor as themselves. You know, he commanded them to love. But what made this commandment new had to do with how they were to love. That's what made this new. How they were to love, and that's found in the second phrase of verse 34. Love just as I have loved you. Love just as I have loved you. They were to love just as Christ loved them. And how did he love them? Well, earlier that evening when they first got together, he gave them a stunning visual illustration of how they were to love. Take a look at John chapter 13, starting at the top. Verse 1, it says, Now, now before the feast of the Passover, which is what they were there to celebrate, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil, circle devil, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking the towel, he tied, tied it around his waist. And then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. How did he love them? He washed the disciples' feet. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this story because we've, we've unpacked this before, but a couple things. One is the responsibility of foot washing didn't belong to the master of the house. It was not his responsibility to wash the feet of those who came to his house. It was the responsibility of the servant of the house it was customary for the servant of the house to wash the feet of those who entered his master's house. But what's striking to me about this story is not that Jesus washed his disciples' feet, all 12 of them, 24 feet. It's not that, what's striking is not that he washed their feet. What's striking to me is that he washed, even washed the feet of his betrayer, Judas, who was one of the disciples, who was present in his midst, right there with them. According to verse 2, uh, Judas was controlled by the devil. I add you the circle of the word devil. He was controlled by the devil. It says here that it was Satan himself who put it into Judas's heart to betray Christ. It was Satan's doing. And in fact, if you look at Luke chapter 22, verse 3, it says, then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was of the number of the 12. In other words, he entered into him. Judas was possessed he was possessed by the devil. He was owned by the devil. Judas was the hum human personification of evil. I'm going to ask you something. Have you ever been around someone who is truly evil? Ever been around someone who is truly evil? I have because I've been in jail. I've been in jail before, and it is a very unnerving feeling to be around someone who is truly years, evil. Years ago, I had the opportunity to visit Men's Central Jail, L.A. County Men's Central Jail. I hope you didn't think I was in jail because I was arrested. <laughs> 
But I went there as part of my job and uh, I had a chance to tour the jail and they took us to a section in the jailhouse where they keep the most dangerous and hardened criminals separate from the, the rest of the general population there. When I came to that section, you know, these are the murders and the rapists. Uh, I, I sensed in my spirit the spiritual darkness radiating out, radiating out of that, out of those cells. And then when we left the area, and I was just being escorted by a deputy sheriff, when we left the area, we got into an elevator to leave the floor, and another deputy came by and says, hold the door. So they held the elevator door, and in walked this inmate, Richard Ramirez, famously known as the Night Stalker. And I, I recognized him immediately, and I froze, and I dare not look in his eyes. So there were four of us, two deputies, me and Richard, right, the Night Stalker. Wikipedia describes Ramirez as, quote, an American serial killer, serial rapist, kidnapper, pedophile, and burglar who left satanic symbols at the murder scenes. In fact, I read uh, one post which claimed that he, was the, that he claimed to be the devil's right-hand man. Uh, a few months after my encounter with the Night Stalker, he was convicted on 13 counts of murder, convicted on 13 counts of murder and five counts of attempted murder and sentenced to death. Standing an arm's length away from someone who embodied pure evil was an experience I will never forget. Imagine being an arm's length away from pure evil. Imagine being an arm's length away from the man who was possessed by the devil and who would go on to betray the Savior of the world. Imagine Jesus washing his feet because that's exactly what he did. Imagine him washing his feet. That's exactly what he did and, and that's exactly how he commanded us to love. Love as I have loved. That's what he said. After I ex exited the elevator, I asked the deputy who was with me, where is he being taken? And he didn't even, he didn't even have handcuffs on, right? As I recall. Where was he being taken? And the deputy, what, what he told me where he's being, shocked me. I couldn't believe it. He told me that he was being escorted to the visitor center because... Every week, he said, every week since he's been there, a woman has come, the same woman has come to visit him to read the Bible to him and to share Christ with him. And he was willing to meet with her, and so he meets with her once a week. Every week, she comes to visit him, and he goes down there to meet with her. And, and I asked the deputy if, if he, Ramirez knew her. He said, no, he, he didn't know her. They're not friends. She just, when, when he was arrested and he came in here, she called and said, I'd like to visit him. Would he receive me? He has to be agreeable to that. He agreed, and so she'd been visiting. She was a total stranger. And before my tour was over, the deputy took me down to the visitor center, and sure enough, there she was, sitting right across from him, sharing with a Bible open, sharing Christ with a night stalker, and I was floored. That amazing lady, I'd love to meet her one day was a living example of John 13, 34, and 35. You see, the way she loved, the way she loved proved that she was a disciple of Jesus. It proved that she was a follower of Jesus. By this, all men will know, last verse 35, by, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. It 
The way she loved proved who she was. You see, it's our love that demonstrates to the world who we are. Our love demonstrates to the world. At the same time, our lack of love also demonstrates to the world who we are. If we react to the world like everyone else reacts to the world, what does that say about us? What does that prove about us? If someone cuts you off on, the, on Hawthorne Boulevard and you roll down the window to give them a piece of your mind, what does that prove about who you are? If someone pushes your button and you let them have it, what does that prove about who you are? If you post some nasty, hateful, profanity-laced comments on your social media page, what does that say about who you are? If someone hates you and you hate them back, what does that prove about who you are? It proves that you're no different than them. It proves that we're just like the rest of the world. You hate me, I'll hate you. But if we love those who hate us, if we love those who are different from us, if we love those whose skin color is different from ours, if we love those who push our buttons, if we love those who are transgender and, and we're not transgender, what does it prove? It proves, it will prove that you are his disciple. I want to close with this video. Um, during the pandemic, I found this uh, organization called One for Israel. And I have watched every one of their videos. And it's about the work that God is doing in Israel. And check them out. Subscribe to them. One for Israel. Amazing what God is doing in Israel today. And uh, I found this video. And uh, I want to share it with you because it shows us what will happen if we love one another. And what God can do to a hating heart. Now, again, I want to give you a heads up. The first part of this, the first thing she says it's very graphic and very disturbing, especially if you have young children. The rest of it, amazing. Take a look at this. A crowd started to gather. The men were chanting in Arabic. Allah Akbar. Allah Akbar. And my father and I, as I was holding his hand, were pushed to the front of this crowd. In the center of this crowd was an Arabic woman dressed just like this, and she was tied up and she was sitting on a box. Next to her was an Arabic man, and he did a traditional Islamic prayer on the floor. And he got up from the floor, and from his side, he pulled out this very long golden sword, and he beheaded the woman. My legs are shaking, and my heart is going fast. My father said, if you don't listen to the teachings we're instilling in your life, this will happen to you one day. I was born and raised in a small country by the name of Kuwait, a community of 98% Muslim population. Two of my uncles are imams, and one is president of a mosque, where I would hear the call to prayer five times a day. As a Muslim, the word Yahudi, which means Jew, was instilled in me as a bad word, as a cuss word. Yahudis should not exist. They should be killed. And I never thought to question, why would I hate them? I never met Jewish people in my life. They never did anything to harm my family. I just hated them. Just the word brought hatred in my heart. 
Most of my life for me it was alone, by myself, broken person, in need of love from my family, but I never received it from them. I tried to experience this love from Creator God, from Allah. In my prayer times, I lifted up my hands and I cried out to Allah for help. Please have my father stop beating my mother. Please have my father stop beating me. But no help came. God is not a personable God to Muslims. God doesn't say, I love you. Saddam Hussein horses came in the middle of the night and invaded the small country of Kuwait. And then they came to my city and they destroyed property and they looted people's home and they stole possessions and they killed the men and they raped the women. Then we were granted asylum status to stay in the U.S. My grandmother suddenly got very sick. She had a heart attack and she went to the hospital. And two days later, she passed away. I was devastated because I lost my best friend. And this lady approached me and asked me if I was okay. And I said, no, Paula, my grandmother died. And I just started to cry again. At that moment, I was hurting so much, only crying helped. And Paula came to me and put her arms around me and she gave me a hug. And then she asked me a question. Would you like to go to church with me? When I walked into this church, I experienced love from these people and acceptance from these people like I've never before. Fellowshipping together, they were men and women together. They didn't have to be separate. No one was judging each other. And they knew I was Muslim. They were so friendly to me themselves, accepting of me and loving of me. And that was really surprising to me. And for the first time in my life, I heard a message from the Bible. He started reading the message about Yeshua. When he walked into the synagogue, he was given a scroll from Prophet Isaiah, and he opened the scroll and he started reading that scripture. That the Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the broken heart and to proclaim liberty to the captive and freedom of sight to those who are bound to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor first time I heard these words of freedom and healing and liberty. I'm desperate to be freed from bondage. I was held captive in Islam and I wanted to be freed from that. I was blinded with so much hatred in my heart. The darkness broke from my eyes. The veil came off my heart. I knew the decision I was making to leave Islam is a big decision. By Sharia law, Islamic law, it is death penalty. But I'm desperate to know a living God. And that day, I gave my life to becoming a follower of Jesus. This is the God of Israel, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the nation of Israel is God's heartbeat. And I said, God, forgive me. I did not know I hated your people. I love the Jewish people because it's their God, their Messiah that I'm following and he told me to love them. Your God, your Messiah changed my heart, giving his life for me so I can have life everlasting. He rescued me, he saved me, he came and brought joy in my life again and I'm a blessed woman and I start crying and they start crying and we are able to relate to each other and they embrace me and they love me and they experience some healing, I believe, when they hear my story. That is a privilege to have that in my life.
Isn't that amazing? The power of the gospel, the power of love. See, only God can change a hate-filled heart into a loving one. And not only that, when we love, when we love, like Paula and the friends at her church, when they love someone who's different from them, they can change the world. Let me ask you something. Do you have hate in your heart? Do you have hate in your heart? If you have hate in your heart, surrender your life to Christ. Ask him to forgive you. Confess it to him. And he'll come into your heart and clean you and make you white as snow. And he will forgive you. And he will change you. And would you like to change the world? Would you like to make a difference in this world, in this hating world? Then love one another. Just as Christ loved you, love one another, and you will change the world. One of the things we're going to be doing is part of our love series, this series, we're going to be doing some love projects. We're going to be challenging, we're going to challenge each and every one of you to take on a project, maybe with your family, maybe with your small group, maybe in your ministry, maybe just as an individual. We want to challenge you to do something, an act of love, sharing love with those around you. We'll be telling you more about that next week. But let's go out there, love one another, and we will change the world. Let's close our time in prayer. As you have your heads bowed and your eyes closed, I want to ask you, whether you're here, outdoors, or at home, do you have hate in your heart? If you have hate in your heart for somebody, for a group of people, why don't you confess that to God right now? Because you can't live with hate. It'll destroy you. And you can't change hate on your own. Only the power of God can change a hateful heart. Ask God to forgive you. God, I say something like this. Father, I confess that I have hate in my heart. I hate this individual. I hate this family member. I hate these people. Whatever it is, confess that to him. And ask God to forgive you. Father, forgive me for the hate that I have in my heart. Lord, change me by the power of your Holy Spirit. Change me. Wash me. Create in me a clean heart. Allow me to be born again in you. Make me a new person in you, Jesus. And then help me to love as just, just as you have loved me. All those around, Father, we're bombarded by people. And they push our buttons. And they make us mad. But help us to love like you loved us. And then, Father, when we do, change the world just like you changed this woman. So thank you, Father. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you for your word, your very clear instructions on how we live in a hate-filled world. We can make a difference, and we thank you, and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.